the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate that. You can follow the show at danproftshow.com. You can get podcasts at that site. You can also get podcasts at uh, at uh, Spotify and iTunes. On social media, at Dan Prof Show, both on Twitter and Facebook, as well as at Prof Dan on Instagram. Uh, I, know, I want to begin on uh, this program with what I know everybody is going to be uh, talking about because the New York Times is pushing it, and this... Uh, this report that, uh, according to uh, models uh, that are being constructed within the administration, privately projecting a steady rise in the number of COVID-19 cases and deaths over the next several weeks, reaching several weeks, reaching about 3,000 daily deaths on June 1, nearly double from the current 1750, according to New York Times models, models. And that's uh, been rejected by the Trump administration, saying there has been no imprimatur given to any uh, new internal models that show such projections or they may exist. We've got all kinds of models that say all kinds of things. Again, to be fair, to be even handed, uh, including a model that Trump continues to tout. He's not the only one. All the politicians have every incentive to reference it. Imperial College London model that projected as many as 2.2 million American deaths. But for everything we've done, we would have had two 2.2 million Americans die. And that is uh, no consideration given to Neil Ferguson, Imperial College London, same author, his predictions about uh, mad cow disease, his predictions about swine flu, his prediction about avian flu, the factors he's been on. He predicted 150 million, up to 150 million deaths worldwide from avian flu. The actual death toll of the last 17 years is in the hundreds. 150 million, it's in the hundreds. Mad cow disease could be 640,000. Uh, it's in the hundreds since 2002, maybe not even uh, swine flu upwards of 100. Uh, 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 yeah, upwards of 150,000. Uh, it was 18,000, 18,000, I believe, worldwide, maybe 13,000 in the U.S. I think I'm remembering numbers right. The The bottom line is the numbers are less important than the uh, projections versus the reality. And so rather than whipping, continuing to allow ourselves to be whipped into a frenzy by the latest, greatest model that, as we heard from Nobel laureate in chemistry, Michael Levitt, yesterday, the epidemiologists have every incentive to be high. No matter how off you are, if you're above the number, it's okay. You come in below the number, that's a problem. It's the opposite of the price is right. You have to be over. If you're under, you're disqualified in the field of epidemiology and modeling, it would appear. And oh, by the way, Sean Trendy over at Real Clear Politics uh, has a good piece on state by state data looking at uh, 
sort of color schemes at looking at the uh, peak number of cases state by state. Here's the upshot. There are many interesting stories within these data, writes Trendy, but the main takeaway should be relatively clear. No states are in anything resembling an exponential growth trajectory, which was projected from the outset. No states are in anything resembling an exponential growth trajectory. Almost all states are past a peak, and most states are substantially so. That would suggest that in many states, the question really should be how to reopen while keeping hospitals from being overwhelmed again. That seems like a sensible question. To emphasize how sensible it is, we have a study out. Now, this is um, also, you know, a model. But nonetheless, for consideration, we have some real world applications of this that may be instructive. But it's a study out from uh, a bunch of economists at MIT, uh, economic all stars, Tyler Cohen over at uh, George Mason calls them. What they did was compare the relative risks of infection, hospitalization and death for the young, for the middle aged and for those over 65 under various lockdown scenarios compared strict lockdowns that treat all age groups the same with a more targeted strategy that protects the old. And this has always been the discussion. The uh, lockdowns treating everyone the same doesn't make any sense. You've heard on this show from Harvard medical professor Martin Kaldorf. You've heard from Michael Levitt, Nobel laureate in chemistry, structural biologist. You've heard from uh, Henry Miller, former head of the office, founding head actually of the Office of Biotechnology at the FDA, uh, could go on and on. Dr. Scott Atlas, former head of neuroradiology at Stanford, talking about targeted lockdown to protect the vulnerable, the elderly, those with comorbidities, and a reopening that brings young people who have shown they're fairly invulnerable to the virus, at least with respect to lethality, brings them back into society. Here's what they found looking at these various approaches. Quoting from the study, we find that semi-targeted policies that simply add a strict lockdown on the oldest group can achieve the majority of the gains from fully targeted policies. In other words, the targeted lockdown versus the total shutdown, treating different populations differently based on threat level as opposed to treating everyone the same. They continue, for example, a semi-targeted policy that involves the lockdown of those above 65 until a vaccine arrives can release the young and middle-aged groups back into the economy much more quickly and still achieve a much lower fatality rate in the population, just above 1% of the population instead of 1.83% with the optimal uniform policy. So it cuts the lethality rate nearly in half, according to their study. In addition... Targeted lockdowns, again from the study, reduce economic harm, as you would expect. Quoting, this policy also reduces the economic damage from 24.3% GDP contraction to 12.8% of one-year GDP. The reason is that uh, once the most vulnerable group is protected, the other groups can be reincorporated into the economy more quickly. This is consistent with... uh, what University of Chicago's Casey Mulligan has suggested. And again, it's consistent with what you've heard from Michael Levitt at Stanford as well. Problem is um, not the science. It doesn't seem. And this is what Michael Levitt had to say. Again, this uh, interview over the weekend that uh, we played some clips of yesterday. I think it's worth revisiting. And it's not the science that's the issue. 
flu is like coronavirus. I'm just simply saying that the burden of death of flu is like coronavirus, especially when we correct for the fact that people who die from coronavirus are older on average than people who die from flu. Flu kills young people. It kills two or three times more people under 65 than does coronavirus. If we print those, the key thing is, is to have as much infection for as little possible death and also do whatever you can to keep the hospitals full but not overflowing. It's a difficult calculation. It's one which a country like Sweden can do where essentially there's no political concerns. The trouble is, is that in Israel that I know well, in the United States, the everything is political. And therefore, nobody could say something like this. They would say, ah, but you're not valuing death. So the thing that should have been done is for the media to stress to people that every day somebody dies. And these people are essentially in the same age band. You die from corona, have other comorbidities, they have other diseases. Uh, so people like Professor Levitt have been ignored by the press corps. You heard from uh, Dr. Matt Strauss on the show yesterday, the uh, most respected epidemiologist perhaps in the world is John Ioannidis at Stanford University. He's been ignored too. Why? Because he said their models were wrong and he said the approach was wrong. And he said so in March. So did Michael Levitt. And to listen to uh, what his, uh, what the interest in him from the media has been since he did a couple of interviews on the topic, particularly on Fox. I appeared on Fox News a couple of times, basically said, this is all just common sense. Because I appeared on Fox News, CNN wouldn't have me anymore. So basically, I have said very clear of things. I had one article in the, in the Los Angeles Times, which did great. But since I was not saying things that were too extreme, none of the East Coast newspapers wanted me. They quoted me, but they wouldn't have me. What was disconcerting, is a few of my academic colleagues, even relatives, uh, were very upset with me. Because I won't uh, hew the orthodoxy, the extremist orthodoxy, because I won't be 100% this way and uh, suggest that we have metaphysical certitude that 100% this way, and we always have the backstop of saying everything we did uh, may have yet resulted in problems, both in terms of life lost as well as economic devastation, but it would have been worse had we not done those things. So we always have that abstraction to fall back on rather than the thoughtful and the reasonable approach. Something Michael Levitt also said, just as a recommendation, not as a scientist, but just as a free person. I often go back and think about what Socrates said 2,400 years ago. Use your common sense instead of listening to the rhetoric of leaders. That's good advice. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show and uh, the case of Germany with respect to COVID-19 response. Uh, Germany uh, enjoying uh, the lowest uh, death rate associated with COVID and really in the West, it's about a third the deaths per 100,000 people as the United States. Is there some secret to Germany's relative success 
that uh, more that should be adopted and replicated in the West, even at this stage of combating the pandemic. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Axel Haveridge, Dr. Axel Haveridge. He's the director of the Department of Cardiac Thoracic Transplant, uh, Transplantation and Vascular Surgery at Hanover Medical School in Hanover, Germany. Uh, Dr. Haveridge, thanks for joining us. And uh, so you uh, point out in this uh, piece that you penned for the City Journal that uh, Germany was the beneficiary of a little bit of luck and a little bit of good judgment. Uh, could you describe that for us? Well, the good luck was the fact that uh, most of the infected uh, people were young people coming back from skiing vacation in the Alpine mountains, and they spread the disease among the people of the same age group. So the mean age of our initial patients was about 45, less than 50. And that gave politics a lot of time to prepare for uh, getting infections in the other age groups. Uh, okay, so that was the, the luck. It was that younger people got infected first and it, it alerted uh, political leaders and then they could take evasive action to uh, move as they did. And and so then describe this, the second piece of that, which was the, 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 the judgment call to move quickly to, well, lockdown. Well, the lockdown, I think, was motivated primarily based on uh, scientific evaluation. The science uh, did tell the uh, politicians that if we would not do a lockdown, we would follow the same route as uh, as Italy with uh, thousands and thousands of deaths. And uh, our politicians did trust the scientific prognosis, and uh, this is why uh, on a science-based a judgment we closed down the country for now uh, four and a half weeks now uh, as um, as you're uh, in the uh, space of cardiac and thoracic uh, vascular surgery you're not necessarily dealing with covid-19 patients on a regular basis as i understand it um, but i wonder if you're seeing the secondary effects of the uh, shutdown like we're seeing in the united states which is that uh, people with other ailments that need medical attention, in, uh, whether elective surgery or regular treatments for a particular uh, ailment, if you're seeing those people either t- too afraid to access the hospital system or hospital systems too geared towards COVID-19, and so people who need these other procedures or treatments are um, uh, being sort of uh, queued up, as we've seen in this country. Both, both observations are right. There are people are afraid to go into the hospital. On the other hand, the hospital is much occupied with uh, COVID patients. But uh, I think what was the solution here in Germany, that it was based on a regional, uh, a regional approach. There were areas in Germany that were less affected than like the southern part in Bavaria. So in the north, up where we are, we still uh, made up about 30-40% of our routine cases in surgery, but also in other specialties in the hospital. So I think the regional response is also something that may be important, especially for your large country. I don't think that you can uh, compare New York City with other remote areas in the country, and uh, so the solutions have to be differentiated there as well. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, but you'd be surprised at the people who are trying. Um, the uh, it, So with respect to Germany's uh, phased reopening, is that happening uh, both regionally as well as uh, sector to sector by sector? Yes, that's exactly true. They, uh, and there again, the, the science has told us a lot of things about the those patients most at risk. This is the elderly population, those with uh, diabetes, obesity, and these things. So we would uh, very much like to uh, save these patients from infectious risk, 
why the kindergartens, for instance, and the schools, uh, universities can open first. And here again, we do follow a regional approach. So in the northern part, we are more progressive than they are in Bavaria, for instance. And, and so uh, what, what's the, the sort of horizon for a full phased, uh, com- the, the, the completion of all the phases such that you're returning to life in Germany pre-COVID-19 outbreak? Now, that is difficult to say because uh, we need to go step by step and see what happens if we open the schools, which is being done right now, if we open the big uh, factories like Volkswagen, which is up here in the northern part of Germany. We are counseling those people in terms of uh, what to do and how to uh, look at the infectious spread after opening those industries. But again, it's step by step, and nobody knows how the second step of the disease will be uh, followed by reinfections and so on. So I think every four weeks we have to reassess and then uh, go on from there. And how is uh, life in Germany changing with this phased in reopening with, with respect to um, things in, under much discussion like antibody testing, contact tracing, temperature checking at places of employment or places of, of retail business, those sorts of things? Well, it is uh, the federal government has said that uh, the mask should be worn and uh, one and a half meter of uh, social distancing should be kept for the time being. And uh, for the large institutions like industrial uh, companies and schools, uh, I think the temperature measurement at the time of uh, entering the building will be important. And we, of course, will have uh, surveillance via swabs looking for bacteria in the uh, uh, institutions opening first. And and uh, going back to the healthcare system, uh, you write in your piece in City Journal that uh, Germany's healthcare system was never overwhelmed, thankfully, and has not, it now resumed to something approximating uh, normal daily business with respect to providing healthcare services, you know, across the range of issues. That is true. Our uh, many many intensive care units uh, were never used up for the COVID uh, pandemic. And uh, so we could maintain some of the routine uh, cases, and uh, we are expanding now towards normal within the next two weeks inside the hospitals. And has it been the case in Germany, like uh, so many Western nations, uh, that the uh, the plurality, if not the majority of deaths, have occurred at uh, long-term care facilities? Well, this was a, uh, this was very important, and uh, the m- medical people have been very active in counseling politics that th- those uh, long-term care for the elderly or the handicapped should be uh, uh, should be prepared so there was no visitors allowed and uh, to keep them safe. So there were very few and very minor outbreaks of this in these uh, elderly care. Uh, homes, but uh, they are very professionally uh, run by nurses and so on. So there was uh, the, the good luck that we had time to prepare for that in the first phase. And and I and again, referencing your piece, though, we, uh, you write that the age of Germans dying from COVID-19 tracks similar figures in Italy and Spain, the mean age being just above 80 years old. That's true. We are 84 right now in Germany. Hmm. Very interesting. He is Dr. Axel Haverich. He's the director of the Department of Cardiac Thoracic Transplantation and Vascular Surgery at Hanover Medical School in Hanover, Germany. Dr. Haverich, oh, by, by the way, I understand that you tested positive for COVID-19 and you're you're recovering or are you fully recovered? I'm in, back in the office and back in the operating room. All right. Well, good. I'm glad to hear Thanks that. Glad so. that you're recovered and thank you for joining us yeah. so much. Appreciate it. You gotta be crazy. 
You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and we've uh, spoken about the case against uh, General Michael Flynn on the last couple of shows, and we're going to be joined by a famed uh, former Harvard Law, per, uh, Law School professor, Ellen Dershowitz, momentarily. But I just want to start with uh, something that uh, the uh, lawyer we spoke with yesterday on yesterday's show, Adam Mill, had to say about uh, the Flynn case and the FBI's handling of it, something that I don't think has gotten enough attention in the conversation about the FBI's handling of the case. Too much focus on the uh, uh, the notes that were released last week, the editing of those notes, the uh, predicate for even uh, interviewing Flynn in the first place. Um, but what about this? Flynn is being accused of lying about a conversation with the Russian ambassador, and that is all supposedly on audio tape somewhere. But you know what? They've never allowed Flynn or his attorneys to listen to that audio tape or read the transcripts. So not only did they edit the statement that they say is a lie, they won't listen to they won't let him listen to what it is they said he said in the first place. Well, he has to totally rely on their faith on, on faith that what they what he did was wrong or what he what they say he did he actually did. Uh, let's begin there with Alan Dershowitz, the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law Emeritus at Harvard Law School, author of Guilt by Accusation: The Challenge of Proving Innocence in the Age of Hashtag Me Too. Uh, who uh, also penned a piece on the Michael Flynn case at TheHill.com that I referenced previously. Professor Dershowitz, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. One point, you know, I made my book now available free on Kindle for all of us who are locked in and have uh, nothing to read. So okay, great. If you're a little bored, just press a button on Kindle. You get guilt by accusation for free. Very good. Uh, guilt by accusation for free on Kindle. Um, uh, just uh, if you would react to what uh, Adam Mill had to say about yeah. uh, about that tape that uh, that is alleged to exist, but uh, nobody other than the FBI is allowed to listen to it. Well, you know, what's happening is conservatives who for years uh, have been not the strongest supporters necessarily of the rights of people charged with crime have now joined with the few remaining real liberals like me um, saying what I've been saying for 50 years, and that that is you cannot trust law enforcement without having checks and balances. The FBI has been doing this for years and years and years. Now, the Flynn case is worse than almost anything I've seen. But, for example, when you go into an interview with the FBI, they will not allow you to bring a tape recorder. They will not allow you to take notes. They will not record the conversation so that it's always going to be the word of three FBI agents against the word of one person. That happens all the time. It happened with Martha Stewart. It happened with so many other people. You have to rely on the FBI, and it's a scandal because generally FBI agents are truthful, and very often criminal defendants are not, but that's not a rule that you can establish under due process. So it's, it's a terrible thing when a defendant can't listen to his own words and say, wait a minute, let me tell you what I meant by that, or you took it out of context, or you misinterpreted it. Sometimes there's even a transcription error. I've seen those uh, when uh, when conversations notes are transcribed. And here already we know there have been some deviations between the 302s and what may have actually occurred. So what we're seeing now is a, a microcosm of a problem that the FBI has had 
uh, for many years, not only the FBI, but law enforcement in general. Look, but, but FBI just, agents just, are wonderful people. I have had friendships with FBI agents. Sure. I once had my life threatened, and I had two FBI agents with me for days and days. I love the FBI, but all law enforcement has to be subject to checks. Yeah, I mean, it's just right. It's just the rules of the game need to be fair and due process needs to be respected. And it's clear that's not the case here. And by the way, I mean, just both on both on terms of the honesty of FBI agents. Well, I mean, Andy McCabe disclosed in his interview that the FBI agents who interviewed Flynn thought he was telling the truth. That's number one. Number two, yeah. with respect to the and notes. they were disappointed. Because, yeah. as you know, they were out to get him. Uh, right. We know that at least some of the people were saying, uh, had previously said, we need a lot. We need an insurance policy against Trump. We need to get him. Um, and, and, you know, the bottom line is that Flynn didn't commit a crime. People don't yeah. understand the law of perjury or false statements. It, this is going to sound strange when I say it. It is not a crime to lie to the FBI. It is not a crime to lie to the grand jury, unless right. the lie is material. Let me give you an example. Wait, wait, just hold, 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 wait, wait. Professor, Professor Dershowitz, let, let's break right there, because that's a great tease. Okay. And then we'll come back on okay. the other side, and you'll explain what you mean when you say it's not a crime to lie to the FBI, not a crime to lie to the grand jury. More with uh, former Harvard Law professor, Professor Emeritus, Harvard Law School, author of Guilt by Association, excuse me, Guilt by Accusation, Guilt by Accusation, which can be sort of Guilt by Association, too. Um, we'll also discuss his book and uh, the uh, accusations against Joe Biden right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking to uh, Harvard Law Professor Emeritus and author of Guilt by Accusation, The Challenge of Proving Innocence in the Age of Hashtag Me Too. He is Alan Dershowitz. And Professor Dershowitz, before the break, you were explaining how it's not a crime to lie to the FBI. It's not a crime to lie to the grand jury. And you were about to illustrate what you meant. Well, you shouldn't do it. Nobody should lie to the <laughs> right. FBI. You yes. shouldn't lie to your wife either. Um, but the crime is materially lie, to tell a material falsehood. That turns a lie into a crime. It has to be material. For example, the FBI is investigating terrorism in Syria. And they call a witness in and they say, and by the way, have you been faithful to your wife? And uh, he says, yes. And he hasn't been. That's a lie, but it's not a material lie. And he couldn't be prosecuted for that. The lie has to be material to the investigation. And I don't believe that the alleged lies told by Flynn, which we have to see whether they were lies or not, but the alleged lies were material to the investigation. Why? The FBI already knew the answer. They had him on tape. They weren't trying to get him to give information. They were setting a perjury trap. I had a case many years ago in Massachusetts where my client on tape had paid a building inspector. The government knew that. They called him into the grand jury and said, did you ever pay a building inspector? He said, no, they indicted him for perjury. Um, we argued quite successfully that, that that was not the proper function of the grand jury to ask him a question they already knew the answer to and had him on tape. 
The same thing is true here. They already knew the answer to that question. They already had him on tape. They asked the question for an improper purpose. And in my article, I cite two very distinguished judges, one from the very same district, District of Columbia, the other from the New York Court of Appeals, saying it is not the proper function of law enforcement to ask questions you already know the answer to solely in order to get the person to tell a lie. That's, you know, we don't in our country want morality tests. We don't want people to have their morality tested through the criminal process to see whether they'll tell a lie or tell the truth. And that's precisely what they did to Flynn. Flynn should never have pleaded guilty. But, of course, why does somebody like Flynn, who's innocent, plead guilty? Protect because of what we call the trial penalty. If you plead not guilty and go to trial, you get approximately 10 times the sentence you would have gotten if you pleaded guilty and made a deal. And so there's tremendous pressure on innocent people to plead guilty to avoid the trial. In addition to the reports that they were trying to leverage his son against him. In other words, if you plead out, then we won't go after your son, which is pretty, pretty strong incentive, too. too. I had a case where a client of mine's son was graduating Columbia Law School that month. And they said, unless you plead guilty and testify against so-and-so, we're going to indict your son. We know you'll never be convicted, but it'll ruin his bar application. It'll ruin. And fortunately, he came to me before that happened. And we brought a lawsuit uh, pre- preventively and, and, and prevailed. And uh, so, you know, you have to fight back against these injustices. I've been trying to do that for the last 50 years. And now a lot of these things are coming to light in the uh, Flynn case and other cases like it. Uh, speaking of truthfulness, um, Jim Comey, the former FBI director, what about the argument that uh, Comey uh, provided a false authentication to the FISA court with respect to Carter Page? Carter Page had uh, written an open letter saying he would sit down with an interview with Comey. Uh, so Comey knew about that, and uh, he uh, nonetheless uh, presented to the court that uh, this was the least intrusive way to get Carter Page to cooperate, mm-hmm. to, to get to Carter Page was to surveil him when he knew for a fact that it wasn't. Well, there are two investigations. One is ongoing from the Connecticut U.S. Attorney looking into the whole FISA matter. And then I think the FISA court should be conducting its own investigation. The FISA court was had. They were lied to. They were misled. Um, you know, when you submit an application to FISA, and you swear under oath that certain things are true, you have a continuing obligation to correct the record if it turns out not to be true. And they fail to satisfy that in many respects, uh, in respect, of course, to the uh, so-called dossier. So, you know, we're seeing now um, the emperor without very many clothes uh, when it comes to how the FISA court has been misused by the government. Look, FISA court's important. National security is very important. But I've proposed that the FISA court appoint an advocate, uh, a devil's advocate, somebody who represents the people who are going to be wiretapped, the people who are going to have their privacy violated. That person can have national security clearance and can always make the argument against the government so that the FISA court is presented with two sides. You know, the Catholic Church does that before they make somebody a saint. They have what's called a devil's advocate, somebody who argues the case against sainthood. Even if the person deserves to be a saint, you have to hear both sides of the argument. Yeah. And if it's good enough for the church, hey, it's good enough for Pfizer. No danger of anybody in Washington, D.C. being canonized, that's for sure. But um, let, right. but, but with respect to Comey, are, do you see anything that has where he has potential criminal exposure? I think it's a little vague for criminal exposure. Okay. Um, I mean, it, it, if it was misleading, it wasn't as direct as the law of perjury requires. Look, 
I don't want to see the criminal law being weaponized against people I like or I don't like, people on my political side, people on the other political side. We're using criminal law much too much in a political context. That's true in the United States. I've also written about this in Israel, where they're going after the prime minister by making up crimes uh, that don't really exist in order to get them out of office. Uh, we saw that with uh, President Trump. Uh, and I have to tell you, if, the, if Hillary Clinton had been elected, and the Republicans control the Senate and the House, I suspect there are some Republicans who would be doing the same thing to Hillary Clinton, uh, trying to criminalize everything she did. Lock her up, lock her up. We're seeing too much of that on both sides. I'm a civil libertarian. I'm a liberal Democrat. I voted for Hillary Clinton. I voted against Donald Trump. But I want to make sure that Donald Trump and everybody else and Flynn is treated fairly. I don't allow my partisanship to trump my my belief in civil liberties and basic rights. When we come back, I want to ask you about the Me Too movement, the Tara Reid accusations against Joe Biden, the accusations that you've been subjected to. More with Alan Dershowitz, Harvard Law Professor Emeritus and author of Guilt by Accusation, coming up next. with Harvard Law Professor Emeritus and author of Guilt by Accusation, Alan Dershowitz. Professor Dershowitz, let's talk about Tara Reid's allegations against Joe Biden. And you talk about uh, Republicans or conservatives rediscovering uh, uh, civil liberties when it comes to a prosecution like the Flynn case. Uh, you have a lot of uh, liberals or leftists now discovering the normative importance of due process when it comes to accusations against somebody like Tara Reid has made against Joe Biden. Right. There's no question. The Democrats have been, many of them, totally hypocritical. They didn't apply the standards of due process uh, to defend the rights of Kavanaugh. Uh, They immediately said, believe women, believe women, believe women. No, no, no. Don't believe women. Don't believe men. Believe evidence. You know, in the Deep South, there used to be an instruction that judges would give to juries, literally an instruction that said, if you have a white witness or a black witness, you should believe the white witness because black people are more likely to lie and white people are more likely to tell the truth. What's the difference between that racist comment and the bigoted statement, believe women, don't believe men? And you can't answer that by saying, well, believe women doesn't mean don't believe men. Of course it does. You have a situation like this with Joe Biden. Joe Biden said it never happened. Uh, she said it did happen. One was lying. Who do you believe? You believe the evidence. Women are not genetically endowed with a special gene for telling the truth, nor are men specially endowed with a gene for lying. We have to not use bigotry and bias 
The Me Too movement is a great movement. It's done a lot of good, but it's become a license for people, some people, to distort the system, to lie, to uh, extort, to take political revenge. Uh, we have to start with our traditional thousand-year-old presumption of innocence. When a person's accused, he or she is presumed innocent. The accuser has the burden of proving that the accusation is correct, whether it be a Democrat or a Republican. The same standards have to apply. In my case that I write about in Guilt by Accusation, a woman I never met, never heard of, accused me, and then it turned out she had emails that she suppressed in which she admits she never heard of me, never met me. She tells the FBI uh, she never met me. Her own lawyer says uh, she was wrong, simply wrong. And, uh, and yet uh, people believe her because she's a woman, and women, women tell the truth. With a long record of never having accused me when she had an opportunity to do so, she accuses me when, her, when she's told that she can make a lot of money. There's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Well, she's been exposed as a liar, and she's hurt the Me Too movement. Her lawyers have hurt the Me Too movement, and we shouldn't generalize. But the issue is so clear. You don't believe women. You don't believe men. You believe evidence. You don't make biased judgments based on gender. Uh, that's, um, yeah, that's equal application of a standard. He is famed uh, Harvard Law professor, Professor Emeritus of Harvard, uh, Harvard Law School, Alan Dershowitz, the author of Guilt by Accusation, as he was just discussing, The Challenge of Proving Innocence in the Age of Hashtag Me Too. Professor Dershowitz, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Fake news. He's always got their real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. The Oracle of Omaha spoketh at the uh, annual Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting over the weekend. And here was what Warren Buffett had to say in terms of his economic outlook for the next, say, 12 months. The operating earnings for the first quarter have no meaning whatsoever in terms of forecasting what's going to happen the next year. It, uh, and I don't know the consequences of shutting down uh, the American economy. I know eventually it will work, whatever we do. Uh, we may make mistakes. We will make mistakes. And I'm not, during this talk I'm, and later on, I'm not going to be second-guessing people on this because... Nobody knows for sure what any uh, alternative action would produce or anything of the sort. But what we do know is that for some period, certainly during the balance of the year, but it could go on a considerable period of time, who knows. Uh, but our operating earnings will be less, considerably less, than, than if the virus hadn't come along. Yeah. Uh, look, all you have to do is ask any member of the D.C. press corps because they're certain about everything, Warren, including what's going to happen with the economy. Uh, Buffett also said at uh, the start there was an extraordinary range of things that could happen on health and the economy. The range of possibility on the economy has narrowed. 
He said it's not the worst case and it's not the best case. We don't know the denominator uh, regarding infections, I presume he's referencing, and that is still important. Uh, for more on this, we're pleased to be joined now by Andy Puster. He is a senior fellow at the Pep- at uh, Pepperdine University School of Public Policy, former CEO of CKE Restaurants for more than 16 years, and following a career as an attorney and former nominee for U.S. Labor Secretary. He authored their just-released book, Getting America Back to Work, which is a, a timely discussion. Andy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, what's your review of what uh, Warren Buffett had to say? I, I thought what Buffett said was on point. I mean, he's right. Nobody really knows what happens when you shut down an economy the size of the American economy or when you shut down the world economy. I do think, though, that the underlying entrepreneurial energy in this country, the desire of everybody to get back out there and work, to come up with products that actually address the crisis, to get back to their jobs, to get their businesses open. Over time, that will overcome uh, whatever negative effects we have from the shutdown. And, And I'm more optimistic, I think, than a lot of people. I think it will come quickly if we can get the government out of the way, unlike the end of the Great Recession uh, in 2008 under President Obama when he came in and enacted a number of large government-directed policies like the Affordable Care Act or Dodd-Frank or the large stimulus spending, uh, and then the regulatory onslaught that uh, that happened after the Democrats lost the House of Representatives. I think we'll come back very, very quickly, as we did uh, once President Trump uh, was elected in 2016. Well, isn't avoiding that sort of past post at this point after $8 trillion of fiscal and monetary stimulus? This really wasn't stimulus. This was well, I, disaster I relief slash stimulus. Compensation yeah, that's stimulus. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was just survival. I, I agree. I mean, I agree with that too, to a large extent. Uh, on the fiscal side, I agree with that more, like the PPP program, the one-time payments. I, I disaster right. relief. I, I think that's fair. Fifth Amendment taking with respect to business. I think that's fair. On the Fed side, though, it's a little bit more difficult to make out that case in terms of all all six trillion, six and a half trillion worth, isn't it? Well, the loans that are coming out of the Fed are unlike the the, uh, PPP loans. The Fed loans are going to be paid back. I mean, they're loans that are being made with the notion that they will be repaid. And in fact, you have to have some potential to repay repay these loans, even to get a loan from the Fed. So they're a little more like the money's used to bail out the banks. Now, a lot of people oppose that uh, because you you shouldn't be bailing out institutions that take great financial risk and then fail. Uh, but those monies were paid back. So th- th- hopefully these monies will be repaid. Look, we've incurred a lot of debt in connection with this. I'm not defending our debt, our deficit spending, the extent to which we had to go to overcome this crisis. But the Fed did manage to maintain liquidity in this crisis. That was what the Fed failed to do during the Great Depression, one of the things that exacerbated the Great Depression. They didn't make that mistake this time. So I think we will come out of this. When we do, we're going to have to address this debt and this deficit. And uh, businesses across the board, this is something Mitch McConnell has made his red line, and that is uh, trying to insulate businesses reopening from predatory litigation. And, oh, by the way, uh, the nation's nursing homes are uh, pushing back against a potential flood of lawsuits, and and, uh, more than a dozen states have moved to provide some legal protection, some indemnification of nursing homes, uh, either through uh, executive orders or through legislation. But but to tort reform, at least as it relates to opening in the time of COVID-19, uh, this seems to be a big hurdle towards uh, anything resembling a, a, a U, much less a V-shaped recovery. If you want if you want an economic recovery, if you want this, if you want this economy to be revived, 
Uh, we need not to put money in lawyers' pockets who go out and file these lawsuits, these massive class action lawsuits relating to the virus. Uh, we need to allow businesses to open with confidence and security so they can start building again, adding employees and uh, and growing. And and so not not providing that protection would be, I think, devastating for the economy and uh it would be a right to work act for lawyers, but uh, but that's about it. Yeah, for trial lawyers, we yes, absolutely. And and by the way, I mean just to put a fine point on this, Hutton Andrews Kurth, an international law firm tracking cases that emerged from the pandemic, had 771 as of Friday against senior living facilities, airlines, cruise lines, fitness chains, entertainment industry. I mean, they'll go anywhere and everywhere they're allowed to go, like you know termites and. Um, and and so I, I think Mitch McConnell is right to make this a red line for this discussion of anything else in terms of additional uh, legislation from Congress. And that's the only way it will get passed, because, as you know, the uh, the trial bar funds very heavily the Democratic Party. So you're you're not going to get a lot of responsiveness on the on that side of the aisle from trying to limit these lawsuits. Do you agree with the President Trump uh, in terms of next uh, anything next that next that would be stimulative would uh, necessarily include a payroll tax relief uh, for the year or perhaps longer? Yeah, I, I think we should have a test. I think the test should be: Does the legislation we pass encourage investment, business growth, and work? Do we want do we want people to work? And if the answer is yes, it's something we should look at seriously. If it discourages any of those things, we shouldn't look at it very seriously. And one of the great things we can do is this payroll tax holiday through the end of the year because it encourages work by paying people more for the work that they do. They take home more. And it encourages hiring because it's less expensive for businesses to hire. Uh, so it, it, it's, a, it's a double win. This is Art Laffer and Steve Forbes have really pushed this. President Trump. Uh, is on board with it, and it's certainly something we should do to try and revive the economy. So uh, when AOC says that people should not go back to work until they can call their own (laughs) shots, that would be something that discourages work. So we don't want to do that. We don't want to tell people never to return to work again, you don't think? Well, this is is the economic genius that drove Amazon, you know, out of her, uh, out of New York City and drove the jobs out of her district. And, you know, Amazon's one of the companies that's now hiring during this pandemic, during this economic crisis. So people in her, her district who had jobs don't have them. Uh, this, and so her, her solution now is, well, we just nobody should work after this is over. We should all just stop working. I mean, it's um, you know, it really is kind of embarrassing to listen to her talk sometimes. And <laughs> you, know, you, you don't know what to say. <laughs> well, um, and what do you say to paying people more to not work than to work? So even with states opening up, you have a lot of restaurateurs and other businesses that can't reopen because their employees are making more uh, on unemployment through the end of July than they would be working. Yeah, let me tell you, it, what happened with that, this, you're talking about the $600 yes, that the right. federal government added on to what was normally uh, state unemployment insurance. When that was passed, it, you know, just to be fair to Congress and to the administration, everybody was in a panic. We didn't want people going to work because they thought they couldn't survive if they didn't go to work. We didn't want them out you know, striving to find jobs because they needed to support their families. We wanted people to stay home to keep the the curve, you know, the bell curve to flatten it out. So this was passed as an emergency measure. It expires within four months. It it was not a good policy. I mean, in retrospect, it was something that that we probably shouldn't have done. And there were four Republican senators who were very uh, adamantly opposed to it. But it does expire. By August, it will be gone. Now, the Democrats are trying to extend it. That would be a huge mistake. 
uh, a huge mistake and would really slow economic growth and keep the unemployment rate up. Uh, I wish we hadn't done it. I understand why we did do it. Uh, you know, I think that I'm not going to criticize people for making that decision, that they were in a tough time. It was a tough decision, uh, but it definitely should not be renewed. We need to encourage people to work, not encourage people to stay home and become government dependent. He is Andy Puster. He is a senior fellow at the Pepperdine University School of Public Policy. He's also a former CEO of CKE Restaurant, you know, Hardee's, Carl Jr.'s. More than 16 years, uh, an attorney, former nominee for U.S. Labor Secretary, author of the just-released book, Getting America Back to Work, the book, Getting America Back we, to Work. I cover, a lot of this, I cover a lot of this in that book, and it's a pamphlet. It's short, so, you know, if, you, if people have time to read it, I'd encourage well, you to well, do so. Hey, it uh, shows it, where we should go. In Illinois, we got nothing but time on our hands. We got all kinds of time in Illinois. Andy, thanks so much. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Take care. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, Rod Dreher writing at theamericanconservative.com. It's a sign that the elite of American media do not care about truth when journalism supports a woke ideological goal. He is referencing the announcement that Nicole Hannah-Jones was awarded the Pulitzer Prize. The self-described Beyonce of journalism won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary for her piece that serves essentially as the founding document of the 1619 Project. We've discussed on this show quite a bit, actually, before the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, The uh, thrust of the 1619 Project is that America's true founding was not in 1776, but rather in 1619 when the first slave arrived from Africa to northern Virginia. And that everything about America has to be examined through its original sin of slavery. And all the things that you think are foundational documents to create a free society are, in fact, fronts to advance white supremacism. In fact, in fact, according to Miss Hannah Jones, the uh, revolution, the American Revolution, the Revolutionary War against the British, was fought by the colonialists out of a desire to preserve and extend slavery. Uh, not uh, in grievance with a faraway central government that it wouldn't allow that uh, overtaxed and underprovided individual rights. Uh, as Dreyer says, let's uh, be crystal clear here. The most powerful media source in the world, that's the New York Times, which backed Nicole Hannah Jones's 1619 project. They put out this. Uh, encyclical with all with the a handful of commentaries last year to launch this going back to Dreher, the most powerful media source in the world the new york times decided that americans should stop believing that the declaration of independence represents the nation's founding and instead instead accept that the real birth of america happened in 1619 when the first african slave arrived in north america the implications of the 1619 project's claim are radical No fair-minded American can deny that slavery is a central fact of U.S. history, right? We have collectively understood the Civil War primarily as a savage fraternal conflict 
to determine whether the ideals of the Declaration of the Constitution applied to all Americans or excluded black ones. The drama of American life from generation to generation has emerged from the conflict between our founding ideals and our struggle to live them out more perfectly within the limits of our own human fallibility in order to perform a, to in order to form a more perfect union right uh, the 1619 project denies those ideals for anything other than a facade for white supremacy confederate slaveholders were more authentically american than northern abolitionists according to that reckoning according to that position um, and the fascinating thing about this as, by the way, what's the import of this? Uh, some uh, uh, academic fraud gets an award. No, no, no. Some academic fraud gets to perpetrate an academic fraud. As Dreher notes, teachers in hundreds of schools, including in Chicago and Washington, D.C., have ordered 1619 Project educational materials. The Pul Pulitzer Center says, which is backing 1619, says it has put the 1619 Project into 4,500 classrooms. The goal here, identitarian politics, create a generation of unthinking identitarians in a quest for political power, because that's what the Marxist is in search of. And that's what Cole Hannah-Jones is. Um, by the way, it's all the more remarkable because Nicole Hannah-Jones, her scholarship, and I use that word in quotation marks, has been rejected by academics, by historians in higher education across the political spectrum by avowed socialists, not coming from conservatives. Uh, Leslie Harris is a historian at Northwestern University. She's also a black woman. I mean, I say that just because everything is going to be uh, any, any criticism of 1619 is uh, forced through the prism of race and then all the other identitarian intersectional criteria uh, historian Leslie Harris writing about Nicole Hannah Jones and the 1619 project despite my advice the Times published the incorrect statement about the American Revolution anyway in Hannah Jones's introductory essay in addition the paper's characterizations of slavery in early America reflected laws and practices more common in the antebellum era than in colonial times did not accurately illustrate the varied experiences of first-generation of the first generation of enslaved people that arrived in Virginia in 1619. Both sets of inaccuracies worried me, but the Revolutionary War statement made me especially anxious. Overall, the 1619 Project is a much-needed corrective to the blindly celebratory histories that once dominated our understanding of the past. Right, so here's somebody who's sympathetic. Uh, histories that wrongly suggested racism and slavery were not a central part of U.S. history. I was concerned that critics would use the overstated claim to discredit the entire undertaking. So far, that's exactly what's happened. Right, because it's an overstated claim. Um, but you know, I reject her premise that uh, people argued, serious people, as Roger Ayer says, argued against the notion that slavery was central as a central issue and uh, America's original sin. That's the premise from which all sensible people start. But then we argue... Uh, whether or not uh, slavery has done irreparable, irrecoverable damage to America, six and seven generations removed from from that uh, pernicious institution. America can never be good. America is inexorably racist. 
uh, wired into our DNA is what they argue. And of course, that prompts the response. Well, if it's wired into our DNA, then I'm not going to worry about it, right? Because there's nothing I can do about it. It's in my DNA. It's in our DNA as a country. So I'm just going to ignore you because you're saying we can't change where we have the same attitudes about race in 2020 America as we did in 1620 America, as we did in 1860 America, as we did in 1960 America. Come on. Who believes that? As the great Shelby Steele, friend of the show, said, you know, with respect to slavery, Jim Crow. Yeah, you got a beef. You got a beef. Of course you do. Horrible, dehumanizing institutions. All at the hands of government, one might quickly hasten to add. You got a beef. How long are you going to ride that beef? Are you going to make that beef the defining issue of your life? Prevent you from doing the things that you could do in 2020 America because you want it to be 1963 Selma. You know, I, I thought the Pulitzer Prize was devalued when Chicago Tribune columnist Mary Schmeek won it for writing about her cats, but at least she wasn't perpetrating a fraud. This is a fraud. Nicole Hannah-Jones is a fraud, and she knows it. It doesn't matter. And as Dreyer says, and it bears repeating, the whole institution is a fraud. It's a sign that the elite of American media do not care about truth when journalism supports a woke ideological goal don't care about the truth. Ain't that the truth? Everybody's working for the weekend. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Uh, got to be five six years ago i read uh, neil ferguson's book the great degeneration no not the neil ferguson from imperial college london but the uh, historian uh and it was a discussion about uh, how the civil institutions in western societies were becoming sclerotic and beginning to collapse and the question is in the context of this pandemic, does that just expedite the demise and provide a path for the rise of illiberal countries? The Chinese communists, for example, come to mind. He's a pen to peace. Who will win the Corona Wars? Neil Ferguson, the Milbank family, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, managing director of Green Mantle and weekly comment columnist for the Sunday Times of London joins us now. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Pleasure to be with you, Dan. Um, so um, you uh, you go through this and, and maybe why don't we start uh, since you have um, some foresight on this talking about um, uh, as I was re- referencing your book from uh, six or five, six, seven years ago, The Great Degeneration. So just give us an assessment of, of the West before you put it in context, the Western response to the pandemic, what it says about uh, the predictions you were making about Western civil institutions and uh, just how vulnerable the West is to the rise of uh, uh, as I said, illiberal uh, uh, aspirants to power like the Chinese. Well, I mean, I think back ten or so years, I was I was doing a couple of projects. One was the Great Degeneration, which looked at what was, in my view, going wrong with Western institutions, not only in the United States but also in in, in Europe. And I, I was also doing uh, some work on China. I had written a book called 
civilization which argued that uh, the, the period of Western dominance, which really can be traced back to maybe the 1600s or 1700s, seemed to be coming to an end. But the key point I wanted to make was not so much that, that China's rise was unstoppable, more that we were allowing ourselves to decay uh, in a variety of ways. And I'll, I'll mention a few of them. I, I sensed that our public finances were uh, on a completely unsustainable trajectory. Uh, this is 10 years ago now. I was worried of, uh, about the excessive complexity of the bureaucratic administrative state, which seemed to be increasingly uh, a burden on the individual uh, enterprise. And I was also concerned about educational institutions uh, declining as, as well as the rule of law itself. So the key argument I was making back then in the Great Degeneration was it's not so much that China has this great system we should all be impressed by. It doesn't. The Chinese system has many, many deep flaws. It's more that our own system is deteriorating and we should really be worried about that. So it's a, uh, it's a bit of a race to the bottom in the sense of uh, vitality, I, I guess one would argue, um, although obviously the internal con- contradictions of a command control system like the like the Chinese communist system, much like the Soviet system, ultimately presents much greater challenges than a freer society. And we've seen this play out before. It's just this is one of the reasons, frankly, that China hasn't been able to realize the strength of its overwhelming numbers to this point. That's right. And I think it's important to think of the the pandemic uh, of COVID-19 as a kind of version of Chernobyl. Uh, Chernobyl was a catastrophe that the Soviet Union tried to hush up at first. And finally, it couldn't hush it up because the radiation was spreading all over the place, far beyond Soviet borders. Uh, In the same way, uh, the Wuhan uh, disease, the novel coronavirus, was hushed up in December and into January. Uh, and uh, and ultimately, in that sense, there's a Chernobyl-like quality to this crisis. I, I'm very much of the view that the one-party state with the excessive centralization of power in the hands of a few people, in particular one man, Xi Jinping, is not a viable model for the 21st century. I am deeply skeptical about China's vision of uh, of its uh, dominance in, in the course of the the century, and I'm not sure they even truly believe it themselves. But if we're not careful through our own bungling, our own institutional decay, we are going to uh, allow them into a position of preeminence foot demure because we'll just have failed to offer as convincing a counter-argument as we still could back in the 1980s when Ronald Reagan was president. And, uh, And indeed, I would say also in the 1940s, 50s and 60s, when Given the choice between the Soviet Union and, and the United States, most countries, if they had a choice, didn't really hesitate. And it was only those that were coerced by Soviet tanks that had to accept Soviet dominance. I think we're in a very different world today, a world in which our claim to be the free world and to be a, a, a true beacon uh, is much less plausible than it was in in the period of, uh, of, of Reagan. And, and that's that's really more to do with us than it has to do with China making a more convincing appeal. I want to pick up on that claim uh, after the break and also get get your assessment of how bigger government than, say, 10 years ago has performed during this pandemic in the West, starting in the United States. More with Neil Ferguson, uh, Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, weekly comment columnist for the Sunday Times of London right after this. The Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Neil Ferguson, Millbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Managing Director of Green Mantle, and weekly comment columnist for the Sunday Times of London. And I'm sure he wants to make sure that you don't confuse him with the Imperial College London, Neil Ferguson, uh, particularly these days. Uh, Neil, we were talking before the break uh, about um, uh, the claim that America has as the uh, beacon of, of freedom and hope uh, the world over and how that claim has lessened in your mind. The, the persuasive capacity of that claim is lessened. Um, uh, if that's so, how does that manifest itself and why is that the case? I mentioned already the kind of deterioration of of our institutions, which is a story going way back before this administration and indeed even before the Obama administration. I think there are a couple of problems that leap to mind. One is that I think whatever one thinks of President Trump as a leader of alliances, he has certainly uh, fallen short. And it's been impossible to mistake, not only in Europe, but also in, in Asia, a kind of a law of anxiety on the part of traditionally loyal American allies about the direction of American politics. The second one that I would emphasize perhaps more is that while we uh, would obviously argue that there's something very dangerous about China's dominance of uh, social networks, because if the world ends up on a Chinese technical standard, then our, our data will be accessible to the Chinese Communist Party more or less on demand. I don't think that we can very credibly claim that the situation is massively better in the United States, where our data are essentially available to Mark Zuckerberg on demand. And I think we failed signally to regulate or manage the growth of the internet in the United States in a way that has upheld individual privacy and indeed and retained the notion that our private data is our own. If you say don't sign up with Huawei and don't use Alipay, you've got to have a slightly more convincing alternative than we currently have. We don't have a technological alternative to Huawei because there is no American company that makes 5G hardware. And we don't really have anything that's significantly superior to Alipay because our existing big tech companies have shown remarkably little regard for the privacy and, and I would say the interests of users whose data they've relentlessly accumulated. So those two areas make it much harder for us to claim with complete confidence that we really have a superior model. Like, let me be clear, we do have a superior model, but I think when we're making that claim around the world, it rings hollow in a number of ways. Let, let, let's go back to the, the former category, because I, I largely agree with you about the, the consolidation of, of government and tech oligarchs and, and how uh, that's playing itself out and how that's likely to play itself out, that consolidation growing. They're both institutions' power growing significantly coming out of this but with respect to Trump and, um, you know, the world, the global community, such as it is, you know, one of the things it seems that's been exposed is the fecklessness of world institutions that we're supposed to hold in high esteem, starting with, of course, the World Health Organization, but also even before that uh, with NATO and uh, President Trump's essentially saying you know, people have to start paying a little bit more of their, their fair share, a little bit more freight here. Everything can't just be... Um, go to America to write a check for 
all the things that we're supposed to be doing collectively. So, I mean, there, there's a little and I'm sure that that generated some friction, but there was a little bit of right sizing of the relate some of these relationships uh, and a little bit of examination of just how some of these international bodies operate. That's happening. That doesn't necessarily redound to a lot of confidence in them either. Oh, I completely agree with that. There are at least two issues on which President Trump was completely right. One was trade with China, which was clearly skewed to the advantage of China. And the other was NATO, where the United States was paying far too high a share of the security of Europe. And uh, a great majority of the European countries, including big ones like Germany, were all but free riding. On those two issues, he was quite right. And I think one of the positive consequences of the Trump presidency has been a reality check on China, which was long overdue. Finally, the policy elite in the United States woke up to the reality that that China was far from a gradually liberalizing uh, partner that we had uh, somehow brought in from the cold through economic exchange. And and, And I think it's also now widely accepted that NATO is is long overdue some rebalancing. And and I'm hopeful that we are moving in that direction, although, of course, much has been lost sight of during the pandemic. And and to that point about China, now everything China-related is under scrutiny from supply webs to the Confucius Institutes to Chinese nationals that may be connected to higher ups in the Communist Party being admitted to uh, universities in in America. I mean, you know, it's it's Chinese getting educated in the West, not uh, United States, the best and brightest getting educated in China uh, by and large. And so it would seem to me that that uh, renewed scrutiny and desire to hold China to account for what they did and didn't do with respect to the pandemic, that will significantly retard their prospects for establishing themselves as the world's hegemon. Yeah, I think this has been a moment of of revelation, a moment of truth for many people. I think there were plenty of people in Europe who were still determined to be uh, on the best possible terms with China. And the more President Trump criticized China, the more they seemed to gravitate towards Beijing. But I think the pandemic has been a kind of moment of truth, revealing the true nature of the regime in Beijing. And it's been a shock, I think, to to discover that China could really behave first with such negligence and disregard for global health and and then to engage in a disinformation campaign, trying somehow to claim that the virus didn't originate in China at all. I think it's been very interesting that the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, who, who was, I think, ready to go down the Huawei road for 5G hardware has had second thoughts, uh, uh, I'm, I'm glad that's happened, uh, even if it did take a brush with death for him to see <laughs> yeah. the light. Yeah. So I, I think the mood in Europe has changed on China and, and that there are fewer and fewer voices taking the Beijing line compared with maybe a, a year ago. Well, that's uh, good news for the United States, particularly if we can, as you suggest, get out of our own way and um, and reestablish some uh, additional legitimacy to the uh, organizing institutions of a free society, which is going to be a lot of work. Neil Ferguson, Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Managing Director of Green Mantle and Weekly Comments Columnist for the Sunday Times of London. Neil Ferguson, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. We didn't get to it yesterday, so I do want to make mention of it today. Uh, former President George W. Bush issuing a uh, video over the weekend, video message of national unity, recalling uh, 9-11, of course, and uh, the response to the nation after 9-11. Somewhat different than the response to the pandemic, clearly. Uh, George Bush, among other things, uh, W. had this to say. Finally, let us remember how small our differences are in the face of this shared threat. In the final analysis, we are not partisan combatants. We are human beings, equally vulnerable and equally wonderful in the sight of God. We rise or fall together, and we are determined to rise. God bless you all. You know, I, I appreciate the sentiment. Um, I didn't think it was necessary for President Trump to um, uh, respond vitriolically to that. It's a pedestrian sentiment. It's a pro forma statement from a politician, particularly an ex-president. And while I certainly agree that we're all equally beautiful in the eyes of God, we're all equal before God, the whole we're unified, the, the things that divide us are very small, no, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, you know, I, I, I want to be optimistic, but I also want to be realistic. And mindless happy talk doesn't get us there. So when you're threatening my life and livelihood in that order, when you are saying my God-given rights are subject to your whims, as we're seeing with Mayor De Blasio in New York City, just um, uh, after talking about the shutting down synagogues permanently that didn't shut down when he said shutting him down permanently. Uh, he's saying that there should be no protest during a pandemic. The constitution is suspended during every viral outbreak or during a viral outbreak that reaches some threshold that will be defined at some point. No, I don't think so. Uh, with what's going on in terms of the infringements on people's economic pursuits and people's God-given rights as enshrined in the Bill of Rights. The idea that um, uh, the, the differences are small with a shutdown or bust political class and abiding press corps. These are small matters. Your constitutional rights are not trivial matters. As Hayek famously said, to be controlled in your economic pursuits is to be controlled in everything. That's not a trivial matter. And the press corps in places like Chicago Characterizing rally goers as Nazis is not a trivial matter. I wish I could agree with W, but I can't. I can't agree that with uh, Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla that No Safe Spaces is a documentary you should see. Number one political documentary of 2019. You can watch it now live stream at nosafespaces.com. This is uh, the documentary that chronicles the attack on free speech in this country. And for Dan Prof Show listeners, for a limited time only, use the discount code SAFE25 for 25% off No Safe Spaces. Again, No Safe Spaces, 25% off if you use the discount, discount code SAFE25. And you can watch it as many times as you want until the end of May at nosafespaces.com. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Boom, 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 boom. 
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And you can follow us at danprofshow.com. That's where you'll find podcasts of the program as well as uh, you can locate them at uh, Spotify, iTunes. In Chicago, the AM560 app, the same app you used to listen to the morning show I do with Amy Jacobson. At Dan Prof Show on social media, Facebook and Twitter, at Prof Dan on Instagram. I want to kick off this hour by uh, previewing an Illinois pastor that has national application, his story. I'm talking about uh, Stephen Castle. He's the lead pastor at Beloved Church in Lena, Illinois. We're seeing this across the country. You've had the Department of Justice have to get involved in cases where people's First Amendment freedom of religion rights have been infringed upon in Mississippi, in Virginia. You have controversy in Kansas City, Missouri, over uh, a requirement by the mayor that churches record and document who attends their church, uh, ostensibly under the auspices of contact tracing. You've got a situation in Knox County, Tennessee, where uh, churches are being told they can't use hymnals or Bibles because, you know, coronavirus could exist on the surface, as if people couldn't um, ensure that uh, those books were uh, properly sanitized. In Illinois, you had a case where churches under the previous executive order issued by the governor, the previous lockdown order, were not considered essential institutions. Sam, uh, excuse me, Stephen Castle, Sam thinking Sam Castle, the NBA basketball player, Stephen Castle, the pastor, filed suit. The governor relented somewhat by reclassifying houses of worship as essential institutions in his executive order that keeps Illinois under lockdown until May 30. Governor Pritzker addressing uh, Illinoisans on Monday afternoon in a way that's similar to the sort of the high handedness you get from shutdown politicians. Governor Pritzker going full Spike Lee. If our numbers flatten and get better, um, and that's where we seem to be at right now, it's because people have followed the rules. And to the extent people are not following them and gathering in groups, um, they're going to spread the virus and they're going to cause us to go back into a, uh, you know, a previous executive order or a, or a more stringent lockdown uh, than what we've had. If, in fact, there's a spike of cases as a result of people not following the rules. So- yeah, do the right thing. And uh, if you don't, you get grounded again. You won't get to go to your church. Well, we're asking them to disperse. I mean, that's the most important thing. We just don't want people getting sick. Nobody, it's not an intention that people will go to jail. I will say, however, that if people are persistently defiant, they can be put in jail. Not quite as as strident as Rodrigo Duterte, Lightfoot, uh, in Chicago. But here's the thing about that. There's no context given at these press conferences, and the Chicago press corps is so docile generally. They ask generic questions rather than questions with a point that sets up a premise that the governor must respond to. For example, don't just say people in Alina are going to get arrested if they go to church. No. A governor, the uh, congregates at Lena practice social distancing. There were 60-some people in a church that holds 225. Uh, That's plenty of space for people to follow all of your protocols. I'm sure they'd be happy to wear masks, too, as long as they could practice their faith. So tell me how that's any different than a retail environment or the other environments that are allowed under your order. Tell me why that's not possible, why there even has to be a discussion about law enforcement in a church setting. That's what I want to know. Spare me the not our first resort. Spare me 
the refrigerator magnet responses. I'm giving you a specific question, and I want a specific answer on the merits. I've already established what the facts are. Now you give me a substantive answer. That's how you have a conversation with a squirmy politician. Stephen Castle is the lead pastor at Beloved Church in Lean, Illinois, and he's a litigator of the matter and federal district court judge authored just an incredible opinion on the Constitution. I haven't seen a worse interpretation of our founding documents since Pulitzer Prize winner and account Nicole Hannah-Jones. Pastor Castle, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's an honor. Thanks for having me. So where do things stand as far as you're concerned and what you have, what you and your congregants have planned for uh, Sunday service? I was holding myself back during your previous commentary because we're in a time <laughs> which I'm laughing because it, it is so egregious that we're in a time that we have politicians talking about whether I get to get out of detention or not and go have church. Like you said, they threaten, you know, the threats of, of, arrest, of arrest and things like that. First off, he can't. He can't arrest me. Secondly, the fact that we're even talking about whether church is legal or not. I mean, that's kind of what this comes down to. Is church legal? Half of the politicians in our country right now are saying, no, it's legal if you do it the way we want you to do it. I've gone through this, you know, like under Governor Pritzker. By the way, Governor Pritzker's latest executive order, the reason that he actually put in a provision for the First Amendment was because of our lawsuit. The morning that he released his executive order last Thursday, that was not in there. He released the press copies. And then after our lawsuit was filed, and I assume that his legal team encouraged him to redirect himself, I actually have a memo from the inside of his own legal team that tells him that all of your orders are unconstitutional. And when these things start happening, what are we going to do? Which is the basis of the memo. There is no way he can enforce any of this. I mean, he's literally violating the number one amendment. But... The number one thing when we go into forming this country is let's put this amendment to the Constitution so that nobody ever under any circumstances at any time will ever stop somebody from peaceably ascending from the free exercise of the religion, from the freedom of the press. And here we are in 2020. And because everybody has cell phones and Internet and cable TV. They'll just sit at the house and they'll wait it out because it really wasn't that important to begin. Uh, his, uh, his first instinct is important that you point out that he did this uh, designating uh, church, uh, uh, churches and houses of worship as essential businesses or essential operations, essential institutions, only because of your lawsuit. It's important to note that uh, this was done because of uh, the threat of litigation. It wasn't done because of a belief, and that's that's really a key point. I wonder how you're being treated and uh, your church is being treated by officials in, in Lena, Illinois, and Stevenson County, Illinois. The local uh, police chief, uh, Chief Shively, the, the local sheriff, Sheriff Dave Schneiders, the local state's attorney, uh, Carl Larson, and then Craig Metma, who is the department of uh, the county uh, health department leader. All of these guys are great, great, great guys. They're great guys. Steve's my neighbor. I love him. I honor him. Sheriff Snyder is a great man. I love him. I honor him. I, I submit to their positions. I'm a chaplain at the county jail here in, in, the, in, the, in the county. And so I, I work with, with Dave a lot. None of this has to do with them. The reason they're all named on here is because the way Pritzker made his orders, that he basically, with the sweep of his pen, said that these fellows that I just named are going to have to come after me. In other words, he can't come after me, so he has to send people after me. That's why we had to name them, 
they're incredible people. They have left us alone. They've done nothing but, but honor us and serve us. And that's one of the reasons that, that I know that we're not going to, going to be arrested this Sunday at church is because there's no one to arrest us because they're on our side. These guys sworn oath to the Constitution. It's interesting that um, the lack of respect for local authorities, the dismissal of complaints from local authorities by the governor, considering the other part of federalism that he does like, uh, with respect to states versus federal government, he's full of ideas for what the federal government should be doing, what their criticisms of what they're not doing, what he wants from the federal government, what he doesn't want from the federal government. But his uh, philosophical belief in federalism stops apparently at the governor's mansion. He doesn't believe in, well, subsidiarity, but it's really, in a secular sense, it's, it's, it's federalism. It's uh, state versus local, just like it's state versus federal, power closest to the people. It's, it's interesting. It must be an interesting civics lesson for your local officials. And here's the thing. We live in the normal part of Illinois, you know, where we're out here and, and kind of rule our church. But out here, we're the, we're the normal part. We're the part that, that believe in family. We believe in proper education. We believe in God. You know, it's actually, you know, we actually believe he exists and we worship him. And it's not just a poster on your wall so that people don't think that you're a Hindu. There's a, there's a whole different, I guess, mentality of the folks in, their, in our area. And so, like I said, uh, let me just take Steve Shively, for an example. He's my neighbor. I live in a, a neighboring town. He lives in the same town. He literally is about 12 houses away. The guy is an incredible guy. He's a conservative. He's a Christian. He is a constitutionalist. He signed an oath to the Constitution. That's why these things are very, very tenuous for a ton of people in regular Illinois, which, you know, as we all know, I think Illinois has 106 counties or whatever. And, uh, you know, Governor Fisker was only elected by seven counties. I mean, it's, it's not like he speaks for Illinois. Pastor Stephen Castle, lead pastor, beloved church in Lena, Illinois, Stevenson County, Illinois, regular Illinois. Pastor Castle, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, y'all. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, I think we could use more plain spokenness from uh, elected officials in these times, these COVID-19 times. Uh, it's just so much uh, more consumable, regardless of what the message is. Some The uh, alternative of high-handedness, uh, that is, uh, or high-handedness, high-mindedness, which is just a masquerade for high-handedness, I guess is the way to say it. Uh, let me give you an example of what I mean. West, for Governor, uh, West Virginia Governor Jim Justice, that is, announcing uh, the phased-in reopening of his state with uh, a particular emphasis on following the guidelines. Again, I encourage all businesses that are allowed to open to do so only if they can follow the guidelines to keep West Virginia safe. Uh, he really wants you to follow the effing guidelines. Um, puts a sort of uh, imprint on it, doesn't it? Uh, let's talk about it like we're doing a job at a job site rather than, uh, you know, all of the fake pleasantries of political speak. For more on this, and um, speaking of fake pleasantries, 
abundance of caution. We're pleased to be joined by Charles Kessler, senior fellow of the Claremont Institute, editor of the Claremont Review of Books, host of the Claremont's The American Mind video series, and the Dengler Dykema Distinguished Professor of Government at Claremont McKenna College. Charles, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yes, Dan. Uh, very uh, happy to be here. Now, thanks I, for inviting me. Now, I'm not going to allow you to use a colorful language like uh, the governor of West Virginia, but um, I take his attitude, which is, uh, let's just get down to it. Uh, here's what we're going to do. Here's what I need you to do. Let's everybody hold up our end and get on with it already. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's um, uh, it's annoying, to say the least, but it's also um, uh, concerning because uh most of what's going on um, is happening as a result of governors and uh, executives of various kinds, even in the national executive, um, declaring what uh, the American people are supposed to do, ordering the American people to do certain things. They're acting under emergency powers, um, but they're acting uh, alone, really. No legislatures have endorsed, almost no legislatures have endorsed these measures. There are no emergency laws to speak of. Um, these are executive edicts. These are executive orders. Uh, no courts have reviewed any of these edicts. Uh, and so there's a certain lawlessness uh, in the nature of the emergency that I think uh, a freedom-loving people has to be uh, cautious about. We don't want um, to get in the habit of simply following uh, governor's orders. Uh, we don't want to get in the habit of even of following public health directives that ultimately are not backed up by some legislature uh, or some judicial uh, supervision or review. And the way that... that that is not democratic government. And that the... is a pathway, uh, a dangerous pathway towards departing uh, from Republican. Uh, norms and Republican institutions. And the way they get around that, as you sort of intimate in your piece at realclearpolitics.com, is um, I'm not doing this because I'm uh, over-officious. I'm doing this out of an abundance of caution. Everything that is done out of an abundance of caution, and that's how people are brought along. Yes, but if we did, uh, you know, I mean, caution is one thing. Uh, a reasonable amount of caution um, would seem to, would seem fitting, but an abundance of caution can justify almost anything. Um, an abundance of caution, you know, we could be driving at five miles per hour uh, on the highways because we could save some lives by driving so slowly. Um, but that would uh, that would be a it would it would fly in the face of the many other um, goals and purposes of American life. Uh, political freedom, uh, economic freedom, and uh, we have to be very uh, concerned not to set precedents here um, that will uh, in the future be used against um, the very presuppositions of our freedoms. And uh, or as a friend of yours, uh, as you, you wrote, uh, suggested uh, the Corona Burka to uh, sheathe uh, women completely, you know, cover cover everything up to make sure that uh, social distancing and uh, and uh, the, the prevention of viral spread yes, is that that's much right. easier. I mean, uh, you know, masks and social distancing only go so far. Why do we stop there? If if an abundance of caution is our standard, shouldn't we really <laughs> be covered head to toe uh, in a kind of corona burka to absolutely 
it would prohibit any any open skin that the virus could land on and to prevent any vice uh you know any vicious social contact that we might be tempted to enjoy uh you um su- uh, st- suggest in that same piece that uh, coronavirus uh, wrong-footed us uh because it erupted before uh, authorities could do things like the things they want to do now, contact tracing and isolating those who would come down with it, protecting those in nursing homes and seniors, a recognition that they were uh, particularly vulnerable. Uh, we've been uh, sort of lurching from one extreme to the other. Yes, it's some, it, it reminded me of our reaction to 9-11 almost 20 years ago now. Um, we had a, 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 a choice to make in in terms of our reaction, we could have um, gone towards a a form of airport security that would have concentrated on suspicious looking characters or uh, flyers who had been to suspicious uh, parts of the world. We could have done the sort of Israeli thing and looked intensively uh, for the likeliest terrorist suspects. But that in an age of uh, of identity politics and political correctness, I think, uh, went too far. It was a bridge too far. And, there, and as a result, instead of that, we built this massive Transportation Security Administration um, uh, framework, you know, this agency that employs millions of uh, Americans to pat down grandmothers at the airport. We would rather everyone be subjected to the uh, strictures of a security system than to con- concentrate security on those who are most suspicious. Um, we hate discrimination so much that I think we may be making the same mistake in the current uh, coronavirus crisis, where we would we. It may be that a, a majority of Americans now are so concerned about the evils of discrimination that they would rather endure the the whole lockdown of society and the shutdown of the economy rather than focus on. Um, foreign travelers, on uh, you know uh, people who've been to uh, hot spots around the world, rather than focusing on nursing home uh, residents, on those who are most uh, vulnerable or most capable of spreading the disease. Instead of that, uh, I fear that we might be we might have decided it's better to lock everybody down because there's no hope, there's no fear of discrimination. Uh, in that case. And that seems to be irrational uh, and also very costly in terms of our freedoms. Charles Kessler, Senior Fellow of the Claremont Institute, editor of the Claremont Review of Books, host of the Claremont's uh, The American Mind video series, and the Dangler Dykema Distinguished Professor of Government at Claremont McKenna College. Charles, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Because you ain't worth the salt in my The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Yeah, his uh, Sunday night Fox Town Hall. We played you some uh, clips of that yesterday. Um, this is an important one. This Trump being asked uh, whether he believes uh, China's. Uh, 
allowance of the COVID-19 outbreak to metastasize and spread the world over. Mistake or malice was the question, Trump's response. So I think they made, personally, I think they made a horrible mistake and they didn't want to admit it. We wanted to go in. They didn't want us there. Even World Health wanted to go in. They were admitted, but much later, you know, not immediately. And my opinion is they made a mistake. They tried to cover it. They tried to put it out. It's like a fire. You know, it's really like trying to put out a fire. They couldn't put out the fire. What they really treated the world badly on, they stopped people going into China, but they didn't stop people going into the USA and all over the world. So you could fly out of Wuhan, where the primary problem was, all of the problem, essentially, also where the lab is. But you could fly out of Wuhan and you could go to different parts of the world, but you couldn't go to Beijing and you couldn't go to any place in China. So what's that all about? In other words, they knew they had a problem. I think they were embarrassed by the problem, very embarrassed. And, you know, the case could be made. They said, hey, look, this is going to have a huge impact on China and we might as well let the rest of the world. I know um, that we're not allowed to talk about uh, the origins of the virus per Bill Gates. He hasn't given us the okay that it's time for us to be able to talk about that. But we're going to talk about it anyway. Secretary of State Pompeo did over the weekend saying that there's a significant amount of evidence that the virus came from the laboratory in Wuhan. The report yesterday was that the Five Eyes Network, this is a spy alliance between UK, US, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, uh, contradicted the theory that uh, COVID-19 leaked from that virology lab in Wuhan. But did it really contradict? Did it really contradict? Or did it just say, we don't have any current evidence to suggest it leaked from a Chinese research laboratory, but we also haven't seen U.S. Intel's dossier on the topic? So is that misreporting or is that accurate that there is actually a difference of opinion about what the intelligence indicates? I can't think of a better person to help us uh, understand the answer to that question than Morgan Ortegas, who is the spokesperson for the United States Department of State. Morgan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So is there a contradiction? Is there a disagreement between uh, the rest of the Five Eyes Network participants and the United States? Or is it just we have intelligence that they haven't seen? So I I would just say we never talk about intelligence in in the public format. Um, And this habit of of different people selectively possibly leaking intelligence around the world is is just not a game that Secretary Pompeo or I get in. You know, he was... The former CIA director, I was in the intelligence community for a long time, and we consider this stuff sacrosanct and, and, and not something that, that should be discussed because, you know, this stuff is, is people are selectively talking in, in general when this happens, not just in this case. Uh, you're not seeing the, a, a whole host of things that are going on in the background. So putting that aside, Secretary Pompeo has been very consistent when talking about this. He said that we don't know the origins uh, of the virus. What we know is the Chinese Communist Party told us that this virus uh, uh, emanated from from one of these wet markets. Okay, that that that's their theory of the case. When you talk to, and by the way, this doesn't have to be intelligence sources. Just talk to any public health uh, doctor or scientist, um, and they will say that we haven't seen the data. The Chinese Communist Party hasn't provided the data that would be required. Uh, for a peer review to determine that it that it came from that lab, so there's there's lots of, of different theories that should be explored. Uh, we're not necessarily promoting one theory over the other. What we're saying is is that the Chinese Communist Party still has not, to this day, has not la- allowed in 
credible doctors, credible scientists who can do the investigation that would be needed to find the origins of the virus. So I, I just feel all this talk of was it here, was it there? It almost doesn't matter in a sense until China opens up their doors to allow credible doctors and scientists to come in and to verify those determinations. But but just to to, to clarify the reporting on this, this uh, reporting of a conflict between Western nations and on interpretation. Um, let me ask another way. Is, is this a news report that we should place much stock in? I, I, listen, I spend my day um, as State Department spokesperson combing through the news. Uh, but when it, re- when it relates to um, allegedly leaked uh, classified information, I don't spend a lot of time on that because there is, you know, listen, there is a incredibly robust um, intelligence sharing relationship between the United States and some of our allies. That stuff is kept in the shadows where it should be. When we come back with State Department spokesperson Morgan Ortegas, I want to ask you about uh, the reporting by by Bill Gertz uh, on the Wuhan Virology Lab and specific researchers at that lab. More with Morgan Ortegas next. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Morgan Ortegas, a spokesperson for the State Department. And with respect to Wuhan, are you familiar with Bill Gertz's reporting on the topic? Yeah, he covers the State Department. Right. He uh, has written, he seems to be ahead of the learning curve on what was going down in Wuhan for many months uh, leading up to our understanding of this viral outbreak. And uh, his reporting seems to indicate that, uh, and he identifies specific researchers at that virology lab by name, uh, that they were engaged in very risky activity with respect to uh, their uh, research uh, including with coronaviruses or uh, viruses that are, are bat related. And mm-hmm. um, and and that this is something that while we still have questions about it, we have questions about who patient zero is. We have questions about what exactly happened. There seems to be a lot of evidence that they, they weren't exactly practicing best methods for maintaining safety and security of something that has this sort of viral uh, viral load. Bill Gertz has been is, an, is a fantastic reporter. He, he's certainly been reporting on this, and I, I think that's a good point that that you bring up. And there's other mainstream reporters like Bill who are who are really uh, digging into the details. There is a there's a lot of what we call open source evidence out there, just research papers, uh, things that people can find. You know, this sort of um, discussion about you know what was said in the intel community versus this community versus that community. I think you bring up a really excellent point that there's a lot of reporters that are chasing this story down and doing what they can to report the facts when they find them. And so we're certainly at the State Department, we're looking at all information that we can from all sources. And we have an incredible team of uh, doctors, of public health doctors uh, at the State Department. One of our main doctors is a man named, uh, we call him Doc Walters. Um, And he has been involved in this process from the very beginning, helping actually evacuate Americans out of Wuhan. You know, a lot of people forget COVID-19 is so prevalent in our conscience now. You know, back whenever everyone's comfortably enjoying the Super Bowl and, and watching it, we had uh, foreign service officers, American diplomats who were in Wuhan with our State Department doctors, 
evacuating Americans, getting them out of Wuhan. This is at the end of January, getting them off cruise ships. So at the State Department, we have been closely following this for a long time. I think Secretary Pompeo was actually the first uh, U.S. government official to come out, and uh, this was as early as February, where he started uh, saying, listen, China needs to be more transparent. China needs to give us more data. And people were focused on other things probably at the time and weren't paying as close attention as, as they are now. But he's been very consistent on this drumbeat. Getting back to China, the, the story out, uh, it's a bit disturbing. And I know this isn't necessarily within your purview, but it gets to something that is. The story that uh, Chinese-made drones are being used in 20 states to monitor the streets to enforce social distancing. And there has been some concern expressed about uh, spying uh, these Chinese products. And mm-hmm. this also speaks to um, this issue of uh, building out our 5G network and uh, yes. the, the, the resignation or termination of uh, Brigadier General Robert Spaulding, who was very concerned about uh, China's um, role in that build out, much like the UK is now expressing concerns because uh, we they uh, properly have concerns about China being a good faith actor, to say the least. This is an excellent, excellent um, uh, discussion and something that I could talk about for a long time. So you should know in, in our mandate at the State Department, obviously it's overseas, all the domestic stuff, FBI and you know, and others have the purview there. But one of the things that Secretary Pompeo has been talking about for you know two years since he became Secretary of State is Huawei. And so Huawei, for your listeners who don't know, is the 5G network that you uh, referred to. You know, 5G is the backbone of any city, uh, any state's infrastructure anywhere in the world that that puts it in. The problem with Chinese-made 5G, which is Huawei, is that it is that company is beholden to the Chinese Communist Party. And so we, of course, through the NDAA uh, here in the United States, the the Defense Authorization Bill, have outlawed the use of Huawei. Um, And by the way, you know, we we talked about the fact that we did have some rural uh, infrastructure in the United States that had Huawei in it. We are all guilty of having to, to take this threat more seriously, but we have been going around the world talking to our friends and allies and partners and saying, listen, during the height of the Cold War, you wouldn't have put the Soviet Union in charge of all of your country's infrastructure. Why in the world would you allow the Chinese to put in Huawei and be in control of it, that infrastructure? We've similarly spoken out about things like a company called uh, Hike Vision, uh, which is, um, uh, I, I'm not super techie, but my, but my tech people at the State Department tell me it's, it's a company uh, that, that does similar um, surveillance. Um, and, and they actually use Hike Vision in the in, uh, camps in China where they have Muslims locked up. And so you heard that correctly, by the way, if, if, you're, if your listeners don't know, this is something else that we talk about quite loudly that I don't understand why the whole world isn't up in arms. Uh, China uh, decides to put people in camps. They call them, you know, sort of, they call it like a re-education center. It, it's, it's, a, it's, you know, it's essentially concentration camp in prison yeah. for, their, for their faith, right. right? Simply because of the fact that they're Muslim. Um, and I often say if we were anywhere in the world and they had a million Christians locked up or, or a million Jews locked up, how would the world react? And the fact that the world just gives China a pass for locking up a million Muslims. There's been reports during COVID-19 that some of them were starving to death. I mean, we believe strongly in religious freedom at the State Department and the ability for people to practice their faith or practice no faith if that's their decision. And so these kinds of things, when you have a, when you have a 5G network that is beholden to, to the Communist Party, that means uh, all of the decisions that they that 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 they make have to be done. It, it's not an independent company. It's not AT and T. Right. Well, no. I mean, I think that's well said. And and 
you know, I, I again, I know this is beyond your purview, but it's a parallel. This company, DGI, with these drones, Senator Rick Scott from Florida tweeting out uh, the virus originated in communist China. and The Chinese Communist Party's lies helped spread it around the world. Now we're using drones made by a Chinese company and backed by the CCP to enforce social distancing. This is crazy exclamation point. And Rick Scott isn't one given to exclamation points, but it deserves no, one here. Not. Uh, and, uh, and, and I'm a, I'm a Florida native. So yes, we know. Some Rick Scott. Yeah, there you go. Well, and accurate description. And, and thankfully the army has ordered troops to stop using consumer drones made by DJ DJI, this, this Chinese company. And, mm-hmm. but I mean, it, it was, um, they, they had gotten into 43 agencies, 22 states to help enforce social distancing rule with these drones. And it just seems like on that, all fronts, we need to be a yeah. little bit more circumspect. I think that you really hit the nail on the head that, that there's, there's always going to be these these anecdotal cases like the one that you just brought up, you know, with with these drones, but more holistically, what, what we're asking, you know, and again, our job is the international mandate. We're talking to our friends and, and allies and close partners around the world saying, you know, look at 5G, look at high vision, look at, you know, look at all of your, and I know that this debate's having in the United States as well, but look at all of the sensitive uh, infrastructure that you use and you have to ask yourself, am I comfortable with the Chinese Communist Party having access she is Morgan Ortegas. She's the spokesperson for the United States Department of State. Morgan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Got a uh, movie recommendation during your uh, downtime in your complete or partial shutdown, depending on the state you're in. Uh, that is uh, this uh, HBO film that uh, posted this weekend, Bad Education. Uh, Hugh Jackman plays the superintendent of the Roslyn School District in New York State. And uh, Allison Janney plays like the CFO of the school district. You know, Alice and Janney from like Juno and West Wing and two very good actors. And it's really well done. Uh, the story, generally speaking, is about the uh, largest embezzlement in uh, school district history, uh, according to the filmmakers, uh, embezzlement by the superintendent and the, the chief financial officer of the school district. And it's just such a fascinating tale. It was, it's a little bit of varsity blues before it was cool with uh, parents that want their kids to get processed through to the right schools, a school board that is all about status. It's uh, all about the Roslyn School District, you know, working its way up the rankings to be, I think it was the fourth ranked public school in America and they were shooting for first. And so anything goes. The school board was captured by the administration, not exercising their fiduciary responsibilities. Uh, and uh, there was a sense of entitlement that was de- that developed. I deserve this because of what we're doing. I deserve this because I could be on Wall Street making a whole bunch more money. I love that argument. No, you couldn't for the most part. Probably you couldn't. And to the extent you could, that's all well and good. You chose this and you know what the rules are with this. But it really is fascinating um, because of all of the stakeholders in these schools. And you see this repeated, particularly in um, upper income, suburban public school districts around the country. I see it all over Chicago. See this this storyline play out 
And uh, most of the time, thankfully, it doesn't involve the embezzlement of public funds by the leadership of the school district. But, uh, hey, who needs to embezzle with some of the salaries and pension and health care benefits being conferred? What, when you watch the film on HBO, again, bad education, just take careful note about all of the stakeholders, the administrative staff, the parents, the school board members, and uh, even, frankly, some of the kids. Uh, another recommendation for you, and that is Patterns of Evidence. Uh, Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, is a documentary which presents convincing evidence that the biblical, biblical account of the Exodus is true. This is the work product of in, investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney, who journeyed to Egypt, Israel, throughout the world to search for answers to the very important question, did the stories like Exodus as written in the Bible really happen? Uh, right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus at Home, along with the other movies in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com. There's three films, Exodus, The Moses Controversy, The Red Sea Miracle. You can watch them all at Patterns of Evidence, and that is at PatternsofEvidence.com. Patterns of Evidence at PatternsofEvidence.com. Thank you for joining us in another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.